Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. I am Donald Meisel, minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. Westminster hosts these forums one Thursday noon a month, September through April. They are free and open to the public. Attendance averages some 1,200 people, many coming from their downtown offices during the lunch hour. Our overarching rubric for the five years that we have been about it is Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. We bring people to this podium from around the country who are well known in their fields and respected for having an ethical cutting edge to their disciplines. What is said here is carried locally on Minnesota Public Radio and to many population centers across the nation via American Public Radio. Today, we are doing all that we have ever done under our self-imposed mandate and more. We are joining the Western world and more in the celebration of musical genius, in celebrating Johann Sebastian Bach's 300th birthday. Bach, to quote Leonard Bernstein, Bach, a colossal syllable, one which makes composers tremble, brings performers to their knees, beatifies the Bach lover, and apparently bores the daylights out of everyone else. <laughs> well, I didn't see anyone looking bored as we listened to the program of Bach's music, which preceded this program. In a few moments, we are going to be hearing more about this musical genius and this very human being, all of whose endeavor was imbued with religious spirit, a simply profound faith. We are going to hear from Robert Shaw, music director and conductor of the Atlantic Symphony, the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, founder and director of the well-known, much-enjoyed Robert Shaw Chorale, member of the National Council on the Arts, the person who during his career, as I've heard on good authority, has made the choral art take eight giant steps forward. He changed the way choirs sound and the way they are led. While always attracted to Mr. Shaw's music, I was also drawn like a magnet to his words when he spoke with wit and wisdom about the conservative liberating arts at the annual meeting of the Minnesota Orchestral Association across the street several years ago. He concluded his remarks that day saying, there is no landscaped, no easy approach to beauty. You scratch and you scramble around intellectual granites. You try to diffuse or tether your emotional tantrums. You pray for the day when your intellect and your instinct can coexist so that the brain need not calcify the heart, nor the heart or flood and drown all reason. But in that struggle lies a tolerable dignity 
and a tolerable destiny. Well, happily, we are destined right now to hear Robert Shaw speak on Worship and the Arts, a tribute to Bach on his birthday. Mr. Shaw. Dr. Meisel, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Like most musical institutions around the world, the Atlanta Symphony and its choruses have scheduled celebratory performances of J.S. Bach's major choral and or instrumental works during this tricentennial season, and focusing indeed on this very week of his birth. During the past few days, while I've been trying to bring some coherency to a few years' random musings, bearing on worship and the arts, we also have been attempting to mount, as the saying goes, a series of performances of Bach's St. Matthew's Passion. Now, the St. Matthew Passion is a logistical Mount Everest, rising high above the entrapments and jungles of symphonic contracts and schedules. Nearly three times the length of the normal symphony concert, and calling for two orchestras, three or four more choruses, a dozen vocal soloists and nearly that many instrumental soloists, and even inviting audience participation, to exist at all in living sound, it must be brought before its public fully and handsomely clothed in something under 10 hours of orchestral rehearsal. And no piece of music in the history of Western civilization, unless it be the mass in B minor, is so worth it. Running through my mind as I've tried to hang my worship and the arts notebooks on today's anniversary peg have been four questions concerning the St. Matthew Passion. One, is it possible that during the entire history of Christianity, nearly 20 centuries, the St. Matthew Passion must be accounted its single most sensitive, beautiful, and profound act of worship? Two, given a world of varying and different religions, given the fact that among them Christianity has been the one most concerned with proselytization and missionizing, and not infrequently guilty of unfriendly if not inhuman zeal, how is it that a relatively obscure church musician committed so literally and so serenely to the dogmas of his day and his place could seemingly seek to embrace all mankind and alienate none for centuries still to come in his exploration of grief and of heroism, both human and divine. How is it that a conservative theology, which seemingly led one solo musician two and one half centuries ago to reach out to comfort, could motivate a body of men and women in our own time who consider themselves uniquely moral as proved by their majority, to reach out for control and even exploitation. Three, is it not possible that the St. Matthew Passion is as extraordinary a work of art as it is an act of worship? If it is, 
as it appears to me to be, an intellectual achievement so masterful in structure and expressivity as to match any of anyone's half-dozen towering accomplishments of human history. What does that tell us of Bach's congregation or of our own forms of worship? And for if any of the above are true, why don't we just pass out the music and rehearse for an hour instead of talking about it? <laughs> so that you can appreciate how far back it is possible for one man to have slidden, you should know that for three or more generations, the Shaws and the Lawsons, both of whose names I bear, have been ministers, chaplains, and missionaries in the service of a denomination removed from the Westminster Presbyterians principally by water rights and Welch's grape juice. <laughs> From one end of California to the other, our church called itself modestly the first Christian church. <laughs> I saw one in Florida last, uh, last month on tour that said, I don't know what it was, the first, uh, first church of the eternal God through, you, know, you can imagine who the deity was, but founded AD, 19, uh, AD 33. <laughs> <laughs> in the age-old confrontation between reason and the heart as the royal roads to salvation, we'd have been numbered among the deep feelers. For instance, Latin was acceptable as an intellectual discipline five days a week, but along with golf and card playing was forbidden on Sunday. <laughs> I was allowed to sing Gloria in excelsis as a child only because it was actually Hebrew for bringing in the sheaves. <laughs> as to the aesthetics of our church architecture, our principal influences in California were Forest Lawn Cemetery and Alcatraz. <laughs> Grandpa, in addition to being a disciples minister, was head of the Anti-Saloon League in California, representing a conviction he apparently had reached somewhat late in life. As, as a youth, he must, must have experienced also other secularities because mother reported once with a wry combination of embarrassment and pride that on a church retreat in the High Sierras, which really was a fishing trip, the men of the church had finally one evening conned their pastor into a game of poker. They carefully explained the rules of the game to him and when it became his turn to deal and the betting had been sufficiently vigorous, Grandpa laid down five aces. <laughs> Saying something like, go your way and sin no more. <clears throat> From infancy, church in our family was no sometime thing but a seven-day, 24-hour shift. And for a season 15 years ago and another period 30 years prior to that, I frequently found myself in the very critical condition we face today somebody out there and me up here. This was, of course, when I was much younger and infinitely wiser. <laughs> For from a pulpit, one may begin with the incidental, but must end with the essential. One rummages through life's attic of intendables and accidents and witless repetitions to see if there be anything other than failure worth sharing. So while it may be a charitable and Christian act to set out in search of the sheep that is lost, it is quite another matter, having found him, to put him in the pulpit. <laughs> I take as my text for this morning's homily four verses from the contemporary scriptures according to Charles Ives, 
and five from the Gospel according to St. John. Charles Ives' sentences are to be found in a postface to his privately published volume of 114 songs. In a pungent 3,500-word essay, which he randomly entitles The Circle of Sources or The Truth About Something, or How to Write Music While Shaving, <laughs> he asks these questions. Is not beauty in music too often confused with something which allows the ears to lie back in an easy chair? Many sounds that we're used to do not bother us, and for that reason are we not too easily inclined to call them beautiful? Possibly this fondness for personal expression, which self-indulgence miscalls freedom, may throw out a skin-deep arrangement which is accepted at first as beautiful. But if a composer's conception of his art, its function, and its ideals, even if sincere, coincides to such an extent with these tried-out progressions in expediency, has he or has he not been drugged with an overdose of habit-forming sounds? And as a result, do not the muscles of his clientele become flabbier and flabbier until they give way altogether and find refuge only in platitudes? the sensual outbursts of an emasculated rubber stamp. The familiar opening verses of the Gospel according to St. John seem to me to be even more provocative in the translation of the New English Bible. When all things began, the Word already was. The Word dwelt with God, and what God was, the Word was. The Word then was with God at the beginning and through him all things came to be. No single thing was created without him. All that came to be was alive with, the, with his life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines on in the darkness, and the darkness never has quenched it. Let me suggest to you the questions which this morning's title suggests to me. Be sure that I presume no ministerial certainty for my answers. I speak to you as a lay member of the larger religious community concerned, as surely all of us are, with man's nature and condition as a brother or sister of man or woman, and a son or daughter of the infinite. The questions are, what is the nature of worship? Two, what is the nature of art? And three, what then are the responsibilities of the arts to worship and coincidentally to the church? And what are the responsibilities of the church to the arts? First, what is the nature of worship? Anglo-Saxon S-C-I-P-E, a suffix embodying a condition or a state, preceded by W-E-O-O-R-T-H, that quality of a thing rendering it valuable or useful excellence, eminence, virtue, and therefore worship the state or quality of worth. From that, the courtesy or reverence paid to that which is worthy. From that, divine worship, honor to divine worth. Under what conditions does worship occur? What are the attitudes and states of being which allow it to happen? For me, its absolutely minimum conditions are a sense of mystery and an admission of pain. 
What wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul? What wondrous love is this, O my soul? What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Sometimes I feel like a mourning dove. Sometimes I feel like a moaning dove. Sometimes I feel like a mourning dove a long ways from home. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like an eagle in the air. Sometimes I feel like I'm almost gone, a long way from home. These words are simply miracles to me of ungraven images and boundless mystery. And their melodies, shaped and worn by lifetimes of tears, are as perfect as anything I know in music. This is not nostalgia. Their saintliness and humility is the acquaintance of my later years. In my youth, I was accustomed to a shoutier, boastier, sweatier fare. Oh, there's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood, in the blood of the Lamb of the Lamb. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Strangely, even these, viewed through the blurring of time, seems somewhat superior in poetic plausibility and just common decency to the sanctum monstrosities which by the miracle of electronics begin early every Sunday morning to violate what is supposed to be called the Lord's Day. From Gethsemane Gardens, Florida to Crystal Christorama, California. <laughs> In the great folk hymns and spirituals of the 18th and 19th centuries, however, there is a directness and a fervor of utterance and a humility which invokes man's nobility and, to me, a spark of divinity. His voice, as the sound of the dulcimer sweet, is heard through the shadow of death. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. When Jesus wept, a falling tear in mercy flowed beyond all bound. There is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. Broad is the road that leads to death, and thousands walk together there. Angel, oh angel, I don't want to be buried in the storm, in the storm. I don't want to be buried in the storm. Oh, tell me where the dove has flown and where he builds his nest. Every time I feel the Spirit moving in my heart, 
I will pray. My Lord, what a morning when the stars begin to shine. This little light of mine, let it shine, let it shine. Occasionally, of course, mystery and pain will find a contemporary voice. Robert Frost writing, Dear Lord, forgive the little jokes I've played on thee, and I'll forgive the great big one on me. <laughs> Dylan Thomas, in his Child's Christmas in Wales, writing of finding breast up always on that icy morning by the post office or the swings, a dead bird, perhaps a robin, all but one of its fires out, and of receiving books that told me everything I needed to know about the wasp, except why. The witticism about the Unitarian playing to whom it may concern is really only half a laugher, but totally disturbing. Hartley Burr Alexander in God and Man's Destiny concludes, this is faith's humility and the fountain of its prayer. Never more feelingly uttered is in the names of the souls of men than by an Indian of the North American prairies. A man from the earth am I. Have compassion upon me, whoever from above, you the supreme. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Who is that a-coming yonder on a cloud? Mystery and a sensitivity to pain certainly are irreducible conditions for worship. A second thing can be said about worship it seems to me, and it is that though all of us on occasion have experienced in solitude what we felt to be a sudden flash of divine goodness and beauty, in a very important sense, worship is a communion and a fellowship. The chief contemporary prophet of this understanding may well be Martin Buber, the German-Jewish philosopher and theologian whom Dag Hammarskjöld, shortly before he died, recommended for a Nobel Prize. If I understand him correctly, the argument of his books between man and man and I and thou, the argument is one that man finds his being and his relationship to the other, that outside mystery which some call God, only when he is confronted with and responsive to another human being, a thou. Two, that the I and the thou and the mysterious other are inextricably intertwined. And three, that this revelation happens not in isolated retreat from the world, but in day-to-day -day living, perhaps even in day-to-day -day singing. And four, that it is this communion which identifies man's manhood and is of God. That is to say, the Lord our God may indeed be one, but it may take at least two to find him. Man's threefold living relation, he writes, is first of all his relationship to the world and to things, second his relation to men, and third his relation to the mystery of being, which the philosopher calls the absolute and the believer calls God, and which cannot in fact be eliminated from the situation even by men who reject both designations. A God reached only by renunciation of one of these elements, he writes, cannot be the God who is made and who is held together all that is. The way to this God can only be a communion. And then he says a remarkable thing. I have given up the religious 
which is nothing but ecstasy, or it has given me up. I possess nothing but the everyday out of which I am never taken. The mystery has made its dwelling here where everything happens as it happens. I know of no fullness but each mortal hour's fullness of claim and responsibility. Though far from being equal to it, yet I know that in the claim I am claimed and I know who speaks and demands a response. Worship is a communion. A third thing it seems to me can be said about worship. This seeking and this celebration is approachable also on a formal and ritualistic basis. It is a good thing for communicants with whom one does not have a daily contact to come together with dependable frequency to consider divinity's wonders and man's relationship to them and to his fellow man. It will surprise no one to suggest that this coming together must pro provide a variety of elements of worth, harmonious and supportive of one another, and so fashioned that they make possible a deeper understanding of the great who am. And this, of course, is where the arts knock on the church door, outside trying to get in or inside trying to get out. Precisely because it is occasional and structured, worship then itself becomes an art or a confluence of the arts in that it has a certain amount of space and time during which to proportion and contemplate truth and beauty. Small wonder then that formal worship invokes the sensations of sight and sound as well as of reason, not only as stimulants to quicken the perception or as a balm for life's abrasions, but as factors of worth themselves. Which leads to a second major question. What are the meanings of art? What can the arts tell us of man? What is man trying to tell us of himself or of his mystery? May I suggest to you four answers. First, for me the arts are the flesh become word. That the word became flesh is familiar doctrine. But what about that reciprocal miracle? The daily possibility of matter becoming spirit. Paint onto canvas into one, in one century turned into tears six centuries later. Words onto paper today flung into a theater tomorrow to change a life the year after. Little spots of ink transfigured into a miracle of symphonic sound, joining thousands of listeners and performers in a community of brotherhood. Art is the flesh as it becomes word. Second, facing the bewildering profusions of matter and sensation, the arts testified a man's ability to isolate and to identify, and finally to relate and to order. These few pitches, these precise colors, out of the countless and the contrary, out of confusion and chaos, emerge in perfect symmetry and heartbreaking recognizability of Vittoria Ovos Omnes, Swing Low Sweet Chariot, King Lear and Our Town, Cathedrals at Chartres, Coventry, Blessed are the dead, and the Lord is my shepherd. And third, the arts provide for the exchange of ideas and values 
otherwise incommunicable by languages of numbers or symbols or alphabets or grunts. The great creative artist is characterized not only by his capacity to order his experience, but by his capacity to have his experience. And while he cannot relate to us his experience, he can communicate how he feels about it, and we recognize his feelings. We find them consonant with our own, though experienced in an intensity beyond our dimmer comprehensions. A work of art may indeed be a revelation. It exists to convey that which might not otherwise be communicable. And fourth, across the boundaries of time, space, chance, and malice, the arts are the open hand of man reaching for his brother. Separate from both church and state, unstructured to the point nearly of anarchy, alone of the great ethical, social, intellectual efforts. They have been free of the inhumanities and excesses which seem eventually to beset all human institutions. To humanity's shame, even that church named after the Good Shepherd and the Holy Comforter has had a history of persecutions and crusades in just one of which in the year of our Lord 1212 and a much smaller world, 50,000 innocent children were shepherded to their deaths by sword, starvation, and pestilence, and the few fortunate survivors comforted by being sold into prostitution and slavery. The arts may indeed be not the luxury of the few, but a last best hope for humanity to inhabit with joy this planet. What is it in the nature of the arts that allows them to offer these hopes of maturity and survival? In the first place, it is clear that a commitment to the creative process starts the human animal on a thorny and lonesome road of self-discovery, away from the comforts and compromises of institutions. Forty days and forty nights is a biblical metaphor for what is more nearly a lifetime of wilderness and solitude. But the more deeply man delves into himself, the more surely he understands and the more knowingly and tenderly he returns to his fellow man. In the second place, the arts are concerned not with the consumption, the sale, or the other exploitation of Earth's material wonders, not even with their recycling, but rather with their reincarnation. They promose, propose not a mounting monopoly of a medium of exchange, but the sweet, quiet exchange of truth and beauty themselves. Within our lifetime, the technological explosions in the means of communication have substantially obliterated its essence. Image-making, with its armament of commercial propagandas and public relations, is an out-and-out -out attempt on the part of some of us to control the behavior of the rest of us. Its allowed, avowed intention is to force a predictable response. It is the absolute antithesis of communication, the meaning of which originally was a coming together, the way of, a fortress for. And left to themselves, the arts propose not control, but simple truth and beauty. 
as far at least as the next election or life after death or prosperity, whichever should happen to come first. <laughs> the arts offer an historical perspective, for their concern is with originality, meaning that which has origins. And thus the arts lead men to consider and build upon his own beginnings, his essence and his potential. And the arts then, it seems to me, are not merely handmaidens of worship, but given creativity on the order of a Brahms Requiem or a St. Matthew Passion, they are themselves unqualified and unparalleled acts of worship. There was one other question, though a double one. The first part of it was, what are the responsibilities of the arts to worship and the church? Well, first it seems to me that we have to agree that only the best is good enough. One does not sharpen his sensibilities to divine excellence by stuffing his ears with mediocrity. One does not gain strength for the stresses of virtue by gorging his muscles on fraud. A God of truth and goodness and mercy is not honored by laying Saturday night's disco derivatives on Sunday's altar. The minister of music may indeed laugh himself all the way to the top of the pop charts, but God is not mocked. But God is only mocked. He is not worshipped. This raises a few questions. On what grounds and upon whose authority are we to decide what is worthy and what is worthless for worship? May not one man's passion corral be another man's old rugged cross? I suggest to you that this dilemma is more apparent than real, and that it can be solved by common sense, everyday good manners, and a healthy combination of humility and industry, which, however, lay upon very few of us the obligation to matriculate at a school of the arts. Let me lay before you four criteria which may help this evaluation. The first is that of motivation. Let's say right out that purity of purpose dignifies. Not every continent-straddling evangelist is an Elmer Gantry. And similarly, 10,000 How Great Thou Artists are not irretrievably doomed for chanting softly and tenderly in the cotton bowl. <laughs> I can recall returning to my father's little yellow brick church when San Diego was still half navy and half wetback after my second exposure to the Bach Passions and Cantatas, to hear my mother and grandmother sing in parallel thirds, there were ninety and nine that self-safely lay in the shelter of the fold, and tears started. But how much greater an experience it might have been had we all been able to study and rehearse and perform competently together as a service of worship, Bach's Passion according to St. Matthew. Purity of purpose indeed dignifies, but not all tears attest to equally deep springs of sorrow. And just try to escape that cancerous explosion whose purpose is not so pure. Positive pop puts Christian radio in the mainstream, was the headline in the recent Atlanta Constitution Sunday Arts section. It reflects bigger budgets and a move to pop professionalism, which counters the sincere amateurism that marked the early years, and these lines that lay it somewhere between Madison Avenue and Lynchburg. There could have been a market ten years ago if there'd been a product. To cross over into the marketplace, you got to take the crossover. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, 
how hard it will be for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And making a whip out of cords, he drove them all with the sheep and the oxen out of the temple. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told them who sold the pigeons, you shall not make my father's house a house of trade. A second criterion must be craftsmanship. Music is a craft and it has rules and standards. And within reasonable limits, these are knowable. We do not ask that every hymn or anthem be an unassailable masterpiece, but it ought at least to have the mortar, brick, and girders specified in the contract. Great text and great music do not meet in Nashville or Studio City. The 50-year plague of that most popular Lord's Prayer cannot for long obscure the fact that it is more appropriate to Las Vegas than to the Mount of Olives, to Broadway than to Bethlehem. It cannot be considered an act of worship simply because it has a fantastic lyric. <laughs> great text, great text and great music meet on the planes of purpose and craft, where music's edifice on its own terms is as honest and as serviceable and as beautifully proportioned as the text it seeks to illumine. In the third place, art and music worthy of worship will have historical perspective. They will have origins, which may in time even lead to originality. This criterion is very close to what we mean by style, and it adds to motivation and craftsmanship the incalculable increments of heritage and tradition. Note that this does not preclude, but rather embraces the legacy of folk hymns, carols, and spirituals, those tunes and texts lovingly turned and polished by generations of unintentional composers, nameless amateurs who loved their God and sought to praise him. These, the folk hymns and spirituals, the passions and cantatas of Bach, the late Haydn masses, requiems by Benjamin Britten and Johannes Brahms, and perhaps even Charles Ives' psalms, really are the people's music. The people think so little of pop music that every six to ten weeks they have to have a new tune to dance to, to trade small talk above, to go up an elevator with, to make what some call love by. The real people's music is passed from generation to generation. Music worthy of worship will have a heritage. And then once in a very great while we may come across a sculpture, a building, or a piece of music which is indeed a revelation, evidence not only of the Creator's capacity to order his experience, but more importantly, to have his experience. And that is, of course, the fourth and final criterion, the creative miracle of revelation. A cathedral at Chartres or Coventry or St. Mary's in San Francisco, Bach's Mass in B minor, Stravinsky's Symphony of Psalms. For, of course, the revelations themselves set the standards. We do not set them. Exposure becomes acquaintance. Acquaintance becomes a communion. And finally, we begin to understand what an act of worship really is and what it asks of us. Jesus was asked, which of the commandments is the first of all? And he answered, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He did not say, all your heart, most of your soul, and let's see about half of your mind. 
The truth is that worship should be a heart-wrenching, soul-searing, mind-stretching, and generally exhausting experience. One should not be asked to check his mind at the door should someone get him to the church in time. <laughs> what finally, then, shall we say is the church's responsibility to the arts? At present, this answer is, a little, is little more than a hunch, and perhaps I overvalue it because it's a recent idea and they don't come all that frequently. <laughs> it seems to me that any institution, and churches run the same risks as schools and symphony orchestras, banks, universities, and governments, any institution runs the risk of becoming set in its ways, rigid in its policies and doctrine, hard in the arteries and soft in the head. <laughs> and my hunch is this, that in a world growing denser in population, and poorer in sources of energy, we inevitably will have stricter political and economic organization in order to provide sufficient food and housing and occasional comforts. And in this sort of world, so it seems to me, the creative arts will loom as the finest flower of a maturing mankind. But even more importantly, for me at least, the arts may provide the day-by-day -day confirmation of a creator's hand still at work in the lives and the affairs of men. If the Christian church can accept the doctrine of eternal life, and most of it has high hopes, does it not follow that this life is somehow a part of the eternal one, eternity being somehow indivisible and having no beginning and no end, and therefore Life in this universal, eternal sense, of which ours must be only a very small part, must be a becoming. I'm not arguing Genesis versus evolution. I guess I'm not even arguing immortality. What's a few million years to the infinite? I'm simply suggesting that if there is a creator, a God of life and love, he, she, it, somehow, somewhere, somewhen, must be doing exactly that, living and loving. And however we may view creation, it strikes me as contrary to both reason and faith to argue that it is concluded. If so, when? And if so, is God not indeed dead or no longer God? Is it somehow not short-sighted to raise up an eternal omnipotent creator and not give him anything to do since day six? Should not an everlasting creator be somewhere lasting in creating? And if indeed man was made in that image, after that likeness, male and female, note not hetero, homo, bi, but both simultaneously, talk about equal rights. If indeed man was made in that image, given a timeless, boundless creator, is there a better place to see the creator at work than in his likenesses? To me, it follows that the church, if it wants to keep in touch with a creator, must provide a home for all that is and all who are creative, lest the church itself wither and drift into irrelevance. Surely basic to the responsibilities of a church in the Christian tradition are the presentation and interpretation of ancient evidences of God's creative processes and his presence. But is it not also equally important to recognize and identify, whenever they occur, 
the Creator's continuing manifestations and processes, and celebrate the fruits of a Holy Spirit still at work in today's fleeting fraction of time's continuum. To refer again to Charles Ives and to substitute about a word and a half is not worship too often confused with something which lets the mind lie back in an easy chair. Many sounds or ideas or ideas that we are used to do not bother us, and for that reason are we not too easily inclined to call them worshipful. But if worship, even if sincere, coincides to such an extent with these tried-out progressions in expediency, have we or have we not been drugged with an overdose of habit-forming sounds? And as a result, do not our minds become flabbier and flabbier until they give way altogether? When all things began, the Word already was. The Word dwelt with God, and what God was, the Word was. The Word then was with God at the beginning, and through all things, through Him all things came to be. No single being was created without him. All that came to be was alive with his life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines on, and the darkness never has quenched it. You all will have your own conclusions concerning the historical currents, tides, and shapes of theology and Christology. But does it appear to anyone else that Christianity in our time may have become so preoccupied with the door prizes attendant upon the divinity of Christ, that it has not nearly fathomed Jesus' humanity. Your truths lie hidden within this scriptural identity. What does it mean that he who is hailed as Redeemer, Intercessor, Messiah, the way, the truth, and the life, was in the beginning seen as Emmanuel, God, in us? Is there any possibility that the emphasis upon the Godhood of the Son of Man to the exclusion of the manhood of the Son of God affords a blanket, blanket of endless bliss in preference to a hair shirt of responsibility. Knowing that the Gospels do in fact attest to Jesus' awareness of his very special relationship to what he called the Spirit and the Father, have we been slow to understand or unwilling to credit the language and the confidence with which he reached out to touch the souls of those around him? as though as also the soul of every man through all time. Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. My daughter, your faith has made you whole. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light for the world. The seed sown on rock stands for those who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but have no root in themselves. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. In very truth, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. I cannot act by myself. My aim is not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You cannot tell by observation when the kingdom of God comes. There will be no saying, look, here it is, or there it is, for in fact the kingdom of God is within you. I am not myself the source of the words I speak to you. 
It is the Father dwelling in me, doing his work. In very truth, I tell you, he who believes in me will do what I am doing, and he'll do greater things still. When the time comes, the words will be given you, for it is not you who will be speaking. It will be the Spirit speaking in you. The light shines on, and the darkness never has quenched it. Henry Charles Smith, who was the resident conductor of the Minnesota Orchestra and conductor of the Bach Society Chorus, said in a pre-forum forum here on Sunday, I can't imagine anyone better equipped to speak on the occasion of Bach's 300th birthday, and we all agree. Only the best is good enough, and we've had the best. We didn't have to check our minds or our spirits at the door. <laughs> Let me remind those who are sharing this hour with us over the radio that you have been listening to Robert Shaw, music director and conductor of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, founder and director of the famed Robert Shaw Chorale. He has been speaking to us for the past 45 minutes on worship and the arts, a tribute to Bach on his birthday. Sir, it is our practice to have a uh, a question period. It's abbreviated today because we just wanted to play and listen to you and your statement, but we have a couple of them for you. Would you, sir, return to the podium and let me put one to you if, if I may. Having conducted so much of Bach's music, if you had one burning question to put to him and the opportunity to pose it, what would it be? <laughs> I guess, you know, I, I, um, obviously, there, there were certain questions posed in, in, in my opening remarks. I, um, I guess one of the first I'd ask was, what kind of a congregation did you have, you know? And then I think I'd have as a, uh, because I believe so thoroughly that, that um, uh, the, the, more, the more nearly we can come to the, to the forces of his time and the styles of his phrasing and, you know, the weight of his voices and the, and, and, and the articulation which he was accustomed to, I'm I, I, I very sure in my own mind that those things issue in spirit. You know, you know I know it's grand for a, for a, for a, um, let, let, for a Mennonite school to get together or a Lutheran school to get together and sing a St. Matthew Passion with 1,200 voices. And it's a spiritual, it's an experience which, which uh, 
which cannot be <laughs> shared by anybody who listens. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, and so it's terribly important that that be done. But there, it's also important that each one who, who's participating in that recognizes that 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 a that a great performance of his would be done in his own in his own with his own forces with his own instruments and such and that and that therefore the 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 communication could be even even you know even more uh, more subtle and more profound so i would ask him you know how many voices did you use and what did you do if one of them was sick you know <laughs> you know i can I, you know, there's one wonderful, wonderful, when he's applying for one of his positions as a choir master, where he asks for, for 11, 11 paid singers so that if one or two of them were ill, he could still do double choruses, you know? <laughs> Marvelous. Uh, this perhaps is, is somewhat redundant given your having spoken to it earlier, but let me ask it again and perhaps you could rephrase it. What in your mind makes sacred music sacred? Purity of purpose dignifies <laughs> intellectual intellectual content. Um, uh, uh, music which max, uh, which matches in its structure, and um, and by the, the sort of grammar of music, the uh, the intention of the text. Uh, great music, I think, great meets a great text, not necessarily upon the plane of. Uh, of uh, all alone by the telephone, by a ring, waiting for a ting-a-ling-a-ling, -a -ling, you know, which makes, which makes for a great popular song if you happen to be born in the 19-teens, you know. And, and, but, but it meets it on the, where its structure is as noble, as, as, as nobly formed and as nobly considered as the, as the, as the structure of the, of the text itself. I enjoyed reading uh, something of Leonard Bernstein's comment about Bach. I wonder if I could just share it and you would care to say anything about it. This is the pure spine of Bach's work, simple faith. Otherwise, how could he have ever turned out all that glorious stuff to order, meeting deadlines and carrying on so many simultaneous activities? He played the organ, directed the choir, taught school, instructed his army of children, attended board meetings, kept his eye out for better paying jobs. Bach was a man, after all, not a god, but he was a man of God, and his godliness informs his music from first to last. Uh, would, what would your response Amen. be to that? Amen. Amen. Lenny <laughs> <laughs> uh, is not without a certain gift for language. <laughs> Not to beat yours, sir. <laughs> Through you, flesh has become word, and your words have helped shape our spirits here today. The I of you and the thou of us have met, and we are the better for it. Eternity, you said, is indivisible, and we rejoice in this moment of eternity that you have shared with us and we with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a good time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.